Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris DeGenia on TalkShoe. Thank you for listening. It's Friday, October 14th, 2011, and this year's just about shot. Seems like it just started. Last week we talked about Mark chapter, well, well, we, last week we introduced the Gospel of Mark and covered Mark chapter 1. I didn't write a recap from last week's program as I'm usually want to do. Last week we talked about how Mark recorded Peter's testimony as to the events of the life and, well, the ministry of Christ. The recording was made very late and was probably made in Italy. And that's the testimony of several of the early Christian writers. The content of Mark's Gospel very much agrees with what the Christian writer said about it, that the beginning and the end of Christ's ministries were recorded, and, and the content, the middle of Christ's three-and-a-half-year ministry, events were recorded, but often in no particular order. So it's really just a, a, a bunch of the events in Christ's ministry, and, and that's that seems to that that's the testimony of the early christian writers and it seems very much to agree with the actual content where we see that the events in mark are sometimes out of place and and there are large gaps in the um what when compared to the events as they are recorded in the much more precise gospels of luke and matthew one thing I really didn't talk about last week, and, and I may have, I'll add a little, a little tonight, is that there are a lot of Bible, of skeptical Bible commentators or Bible critics who like to point out that Luke and, and Matthew were probably copied from Mark and elaborated upon. That's absolutely not true. That there is, um, in, in the events, where Mark duplicates things that were spoken about in Luke and Matthew, the language, the words, the way that they're related, the events are related, sometimes are similar because of the necessities of language, but are very often have plenty of natural differences in them that, that fully leads a reader of Greek to believe that these events were um, recorded independently. There's a lot of places, for instance, where, where Mark has um, Hebraisms or Mark uses Latin words, and, and Luke's Greek is very eloquent and, and very Greek. It, it's not affected by Hebraisms, and, and he doesn't have very many Latin words. And Luke would use the correct Greek equivalents to terms that Mark recorded using Latin words, and, and, and Matthew likewise. And, and it's the, the three Gospels are so different that neither could honestly be considered to be a copy of another. And I'll leave that conversation at that for now. Perhaps I'll get into that later on in this series in a little more depth when I have um, specific examples. Tonight we'll proceed with Mark chapter 2. Mark 2, 1. And entering into Capernaum, 
For days it was heard that he, meaning Christ, referring to Christ, remember that these verse divisions are not in the original, is in a house. And many had gathered so as no longer to have space, not even there by the door. And he spoke the word to them. And they come bringing to him a paralytic being carried by four men. And not being able to bring forth to him because of the crowd, they had taken off the roof where he was. And digging through the lower, digging through, lowered the cot upon which the paralytic laid. The men with the paralytic are said to have taken off the roof and then dug through it. And digging through it, they lowered the paralytic to where Christ was, through the roof. The roof being described has to be a thatched roof covered with ceramic tile. And the version of this account, as it's told in Luke 5.19, specifically tells us that they were ceramic tiles. The tiles at this time were, um, that they were commonly used, but they were quite expensive. And, and certainly they weren't broken in this instance. They were removed. The interlocking tiles were actually lifted and the straw dug through. That, that picture is important because digging through the thatching must have really made a mess in the rooms below. And, and clouds of dust and dirt and straw and garbage dropping into the room, which was crowded with people. Yet we see that Christ and, and there's no record of, of the people in the room taking umbrage to that situation. And rather, Christ marveled before the crowd, as, as we're about to see, right? But, but that's just a picture that, um, I, I don't know, you could build a mental picture of that. And, and, and I, I think it's pretty amazing that these men just bashed through this, this thatched roof. But they were pretty easy to repair also. The thatching would be pushed back into place and, and the, um, Ceramic tile would be laid back on and interlocked. And Yahshua, seeing their faith, says to the paralytic, Child, your errors are remitted or forgiven. Now there were some scribes sitting there and debating in their hearts. Who is he that speaks thusly? He blasphemes. Who is able to forgive errors or sins except one, God? And immediately Yahshua, knowing in his spirit that the that they debate among themselves, thusly says to them, Why do you debate these things in your hearts? What is easier to say to the paralytic, Your errors are remitted, or to say, Arise and take up your cot and walk? But in order that you would know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive errors upon the earth, he says to the paralytic, that's a parenthetical statement, I say to you, arise, taking your cot, and go to your house. And he arose, and immediately taking the cot, he went out before them all. So as for all to be astounded and to extol God, saying that, we have not ever seen so much. My translation is very literal, even though the English is a little rough in places. Claiming to be able to forgive sin is indeed claiming to be tantamount to God. There are many such examples in Scripture where the religious authorities of Judea rebuked Christ for claiming to be God, which he claims to be if he claims 
that he has the authority to forgive sin as far as all Old Testament scripture is concerned. While not perceiving the miracles which he performed, which could have only come from God. The Judeans, that these Pharisees, these scribes, ignored that half of the equation. They refused to see that that was a stamp of approval from God. The, the healing of the man was not as much for the man's benefit as it was for the benefit of everyone else, since the healing of the man was proof that Christ indeed had the authority to forgive sin, and that therefore he was indeed God incarnate. Introducing the Gospel of Mark last week, I explained why it is that Christians should believe the crucifixion. I covered that at length the week before that, or, or two weeks before that, in the closing paragraphs of my coverage of the Gospel of Matthew. I would state basically the same arguments for these miracles. If Christians believe that there is a God who created the world, then Christians must believe that God can have efficacy here in the world. If God can have no efficacy in the world, if he is not able to operate in the world, then there is no God. If we believe that God can have efficacy in the world, then we must believe that he is able to transcend his creation. And, and the common argument is from the scientific viewpoint that God cannot violate the so-called laws of physics. But I would also assert that science does not really know the laws of physics. We pretend to, but we don't. And especially at the particle level, scientists are even quite mystified by their own observations. There's a lot to the world of physics, the physical world, than what we are able to perceive today. And that can be demonstrated. That, that's admitted to by particle physicists. <laughs> Isaiah 35, verses 3 through 6. Strengthen, strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. Even God, with a recompense, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool in a thirsty land, springs of water, in the habitation of dragons, where each way shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And the highway shall be there in the way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean, meaning all non-Israelites, because only Israel was cleansed with the blood of Christ on the cross, the unclean shall not pass over it. But it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereupon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed 
of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon her heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It's a vision of, that, that's a vision of the future. It talks about the first manifestation of Christ and the second coming all at once. We see that the lame man shall leap as a heart. We hope to see that again in the future. Christ's first missionary effort here on earth was was one of redemption. The next one will be one of vengeance. When he returns and builds for us that highway, which is an allegorical highway, it shall be called the way of holiness. That's the way of separation. The unclean shall not pass over it. Only Israel is passing over that allegorical highway. For those identity pastors that want to preach that the beast will be there and will be ruling over them, well, Isaiah says that no ravenous beast shall be there. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, period, alone. And the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion. That's the vision of the future. Mark 2, verse 13. And he went out again by the sea, and all the crowd came with him, and he taught them. And going by, he saw, the, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he says to him, follow me, and arising, he followed him. The sequence of events here in Mark chapter 2 agree very much with Matthew chapter 9 and also with Luke chapter 5. This is a reference to an event which we also see recorded in Matthew chapter 9 verse 9, which happened after Christ healed the paralytic in that chapter also, where it states, and I quote, And Yahshua passing from there sees a man sitting at the tax office called Messiah, that's Matthew. And he says to him, follow me, and arising, he followed him. From this we learn that Matthew's name was apparently also Levi. This has led me to believe that Matthew may have been of the tribe of Levi, which is also indicated by his vocation as a tax collector, which is a role which the ancient Levites held at a time when sons usually followed in the vocation of their forefathers. It would be very fitting of a Levite to make the precise record of Christ's life that Matthew made. Whether um, Matthew was a Levite or not is really immaterial. I lean in that direction. However, Matthew clearly had two names, Matthew and Levi. In the book of Acts, if one reads it correctly, we learn that Saul's name was also Paul. Paul didn't change his name. Paul had two names, Saul and Paul. Upon examination, it could be found that many Hebrews of the time had more than one name, as did also the Greeks and the Romans. And, and we see that, um, and we'll see later in this, and I think in Mark chapter three, three, we'll see that Simon the Canaanian, not Simon the Canaanite, we'll see that Simon the Canadian was called by John and his gospel everywhere, Nathaniel. So he probably also had two names. And it comes to pass upon his reclining, meaning Levi's, and I'm sorry, upon his reclining, meaning Christ, in his or Levi's house, 
that many tax collectors and wrongdoers were reclining together with Yahshua and his students. There were many indeed, and they followed him. In the Gospel of Luke, the tax collector who becomes an apostle is also named Levi, and, and we see that this is Matthew. Yet at Mark 3.18 and Luke 6.15, both places where the apostles are listed, even though they both call him Levi in this account, when they list the names of the apostles in Mark 3.18 and Luke 6.15, they call him Matthew in both places rather than Levi. So by this we can be certain that Matthew is indeed Levi. Luke 5.27, and I'll read it. And after these things he departed, and having seen a tax collector by the name Levi sitting at the tax office, he then said to him, follow me. And abandoning everything, rising up, he followed him. And Levi made a great reception for him at his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at dinner with him. So we see that Christ elected one of the more popular, apparently, tax collectors to be to be a um, one of the apostles. There's a question in the chat about Canaanites and Canaanites, and I will explain that this program. It, it will be explained later on. Mark Mark two sixteen and the scribes and the Pharisees, seeing that each with the wrongdoers and tax collectors said to his students that he eats with tax collectors and wrongdoers, and hearing it, Yahshua says to them, the strong have no need of a physician, but the sick do have a need. I have not come to call the righteous, but wrongdoers. The gospel is clear that Christ came for sinners, and that those who are living or attempting to live pious lives don't really need help. But many pastors even some who claim to be Christian identists, want to take advantage of verses like this, take them out of the biblical context, and use them to support a form of universalism. The truth is that Christ came for sinners, but he himself also said that he came only for Israel. As Yahweh also many times states through the prophets, that Israel alone would be cleansed of their sins, that his relationship is only with the children of Israel and nobody else, that only Israel would be cleansed, and that all of Israel would be cleansed of all of their sins. And therefore, Christ did come for sinners, sinners of Israel. The entire gospel of favor and forgiveness applies only to those who are under his law and their descendants. They're Israelite, Adamic descendants. Mark 2.18 And the students of John and the Pharisees were fasting, and they come and say to him, For what reason do the students of John and the students of the Pharisees fast, but your students do not fast? And Yahshua said to them, Are the sons of the bride chamber able to fast while the bridegroom is with them? Except for Moses upon Mount Sinai, where he went out, where he went without food for a long period of time, that's Exodus 34:28, and the Day of Atonement commanded in the law, which is Leviticus 23:27, which we can see from Acts 27:9, was a day of fasting, and, and the Old Testament in the law only instructs the children of Israel that they were to afflict 
their souls on the Day of Atonement, but that Acts 27.9 and other scriptures lead me to believe was an allegory for, or a metaphor for fasting or abstinence from food. Except for those two occasions, I can find, I cannot find mention in the Bible again until Judges chapter 20, any instruction or reference to fasting. So except for the Day of Atonement, there is no law which demands fasting of the children of Israel. In Judges chapter 20, verse 26, the nation as a whole fasted out of grief. Fasting was done customarily by individuals as a show of piety or as a display of mourning or grief, but I wouldn't count it as a law except for the Day of Atonement, where we're told that we are to fast on that day. Not recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, the Apostle John records, recorded these earlier words from John the Baptist at John 3.29. He having the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices in joy because of the voice of the bridegroom. Therefore, this is my joy. Therefore, this my joy is fulfilled. Here in, in Mark, and this is recorded in, in Luke and in Matthew, Christ calls himself the bridegroom. This can only be an assertion that he is indeed God incarnate. He is Yahweh incarnate. We see that in the prophecy of Hosea, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, where it says, And I will betroth thee, this is God speaking to Israel, and I will betroth thee unto me forever, yeah, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. And Christ is the fulfillment of that. To finish verse 19, for as long a time as they had the bridegroom with them, they are not able to fast. But the day shall come when the bridegroom is taken from them, and then they shall fast in that day. I wouldn't extend that day all the way to this day, right? Fasting is mentioned in conjunction with prayer on two occasions. In Acts, where decision-making was engaged by a Christian assembly. One occasion is in Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, where it says, and upon their performing services for, for the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke. Now set apart for me Barnabas and Solus for the work which I have called them. Then fasting and praying and laying the hands upon them, they released them. The other reference is in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, where it says, And elders being elected by them in each assembly, praying with fasting, they presented them in whom they had confidence with the authority. That's a reference to the, to the election of elders by a Christian assembly and the officiating of that act with the laying on its hands, presenting those elders with the authority over the assembly that they had been granted by the people of the assembly who voted for those particular elders. So it is evident that when important decisions are made, 
concerning the business of the community, fasting, which is a temporary forsaking of fleshly needs, along with prayer, is a way to direct one's attention to the necessary matters and an aid to finding the decision, with, of course, the guidance of God. Paul mentions fasting at 2 Corinthians 6.5. However, in conjunction with calamity, imprisonment, and disturbances, which he mentions there, he is likely referring to those times which we are compelled to go without food involuntarily. And in that manner, fasting is again mentioned in 2 Corinthians 11.27, where Paul describes his gospel mission as having been conducted in hardships and labors, often in sleeplessness, in hunger and thirst, often in fasting, in cold and in nakedness. There's one other reference to fasting in the epistles of Paul, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, where the word does not appear in any of the early manuscripts. It's a very late addition to the manuscripts, and it's not, even though it's in the King James, it doesn't belong in the scripture. It is evident that the self-righteous Pharisee of Luke chapter 18, engaged in ritual fasting, were reposted to God, and he said, I give thanks to you that I am not as the rest of men, robbers, unrighteous, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all whatever I should gain. The man boasted in his fleshly self-righteousness. Based upon all of this, like the rest of the rituals of men, I personally find no religious demand for ritual fasting. There are times in our lives when we should fast, we are not compelled to fast. But consider those many times when we must fast, laying aside the needs of the body in favor of getting done whatever is necessary to fulfill the needs of our brethren or the community or our immediate families. Additionally, it is only practical that in those times when we do need to pray and seek the guidance of God, it should be self-evident that fasting is a, a rather necessary accompaniment, laying aside the cares of the world for your God and your people. I would personally recommend that at least a portion of each Sabbath is set aside for such a purpose, but it is certainly not a sin if one fails to do so. That's my opinion on fasting. Christ goes on to say, Mark, Mark 2, verse 21, no one sews a patch of uncarded cloth upon an old garment, but if it is, the new, meaning the patch, lifts its borders away from the old, and the tear becomes worse. And no one puts new wine into old skins, but if it is, the wine breaks the skins, and the wine and the skins are lost. Rather, new wine is for new skins. In other words... We cannot graft our Christian understanding onto Phariseeism. This is the most common mistake made by Christians and by those pretending to be Christians unto this very day. Today, many people who find Christian Israel identity, and even when they believe that they have found a truth, they nevertheless attempt to graft it onto their Catholicism 
or their Lutheranism or their Episcopalianism or whatever other sect they came from. What they should do instead is to wipe the religious slate clean and reread the entire Bible in the context of their newly awakened consciousness. And then, perhaps they will not repeat the errors of all the former sects. Old programming is difficult to overcome. However, here we are told that we must achieve that. Verse 23. And it came to pass for him on the Sabbath to be passing through the planted fields. And his students began to make a pass, plucking the grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why do they do on the Sabbath that which is not lawful? We see the law which allows this in Deuteronomy 23:25, which states, When thou comest into the standing corn of thy neighbor, then thou may pluck the ears with thine hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle unto thy neighbor's standing corn. In other words, if you're hungry and you're near your neighbor's field, there's nothing wrong with grabbing some of his grain and eating it. And, and where it says corn in the King James Version of the Bible, that word is a old, an old English word which means grain in general. It was not applied to maize until our forebears got to America and began to apply the word corn to what we know as corn today exclusively. It's an old English word. It simply means grain, any kind of grain. The children of Israel were told that the manna fallen from heaven in Exodus chapter 16 would not be found on a Sabbath day, so they would not be able to gather any on that day. But that is that because they were not allowed to take from a field and eat on a Sabbath? Or was it only because God also rested on that day and therefore he would not supply it as an example for men? From the earliest times, men have sought to construe the law in their own manner and then rule over their fellows with those constructions. Thus is the biggest sin of Phariseeism. Let me quote Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 to 15 regarding the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it, as Yahweh thy God has commanded thee, six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of Yahweh thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thine ox, nor thine ass, nor any of thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as thou. And remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and that Yahweh thy God brought, brought thee out from there through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore Yahweh thy God commands thee to keep the Sabbath day. But if one passes a field and plucks a berry to eat it, is that really work? Is it the spirit of the law of the Sabbath to prohibit that smallest enjoyment? Or does the law force one to go hungry in the circumstances in which one is found? That is where the Pharisees differ with the Christ. 
And he says to them, verse 25, Have you not ever read what David did when he had need and when he himself hungered and those with him, how he entered into the house of Yahweh at the time of Abiathar the high priest, he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem, and he ate the bread of presentation, or the show bread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and he gave it also to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was for the sake of man, and not man for the sake of the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is the Prince, or the Lord, of the Sabbath. The mercy of God transcends even the Sabbath. And from that example, man should judge likewise. Here I'm going to read an account from Numbers chapter 15, and on Carolyn Yeager's program last week, someone challenged me on this recently. His motive was obviously to question the fairness of the God of the Bible. So I will read the account, and then I will offer some comments. In Numbers chapter 15, we see provisions made in the law for the person who sins in ignorance and the person who sins presumptuously. So there's a difference. And I will read from Numbers chapter 15, verses 22 to 31. And if you have erred and not observed all these commandments which Yahweh has spoken to Moses, even all that Yahweh has commanded you by the hand of Moses, from the day that Yahweh commanded Moses and henceforward among your generations, then it shall be, if ought be committed by ignorance without the knowledge of the congregation, that all the congregation shall offer one young bullock for a burnt offering for a sweet savor unto the Lord. The, the sacrifices were about sacrificing something that was valuable so that you would recognize your sin and repent of it, right? With his meat offering and his drink offering according to the manner, and one kid of the goats for a sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for all the congregation of the children of Israel, and it shall be forgiven them, for it is ignorance. And they shall bring their offering, a sacrifice made by fire unto Yahweh, and their sin offering before Yahweh for their ignorance, and it shall be forgiven all the congregation of the children of Israel, and the stranger that sojourns among them, seeing all the people were in ignorance. And if any soul sins through ignorance, then he shall bring a she-goat of the first year for a sin offering, and the priest shall make an atonement for the soul of that, that sins ignorantly, when he sins by ignorance before Yahweh to make an atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. I know this is arduous. Ye shall have one law for him that sins through ignorance, both for him that is born among the children of Israel and for the stranger that sojourns among them. Let me say that that stranger is the Hebrew word ger. It's someone who has an expectation of hospitality. It's not simply an alien. Verse 30. But the soul that doeth ought presumptuously, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same reproaches Yahweh. And that soul shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of Yahweh and has broken his commandment. That soul shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. Now let me read the law of the Sabbath 
which was often repeated in the Old Testament and, as it is recorded, was often repeated to the people who were with Moses in the Exodus. This is from Exodus chapter 31, verses 14 through 16. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you. Everyone that defiles it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever does any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days may he may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to Yahweh. Whosoever does any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Wherefore, the children of, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. The law of the Sabbath, already long having been given and practiced, we then see this account picking up from where we left off above at Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 through 36. And I quote, And while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. And they that found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and Aaron and unto all the congregation. And they put him in ward because it was not declared what should be done to him. The priests had to make the decision. And Yahweh said unto Moses, the man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. And all the congregation brought him without the camp and stoned him with stones. And he died as Yahweh commanded Moses. That's the judgment of the law of the law for violating the Sabbath. Now, on the surface, it may seem cruel to stone a man for simply gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Stoning was an ancient form of capital punishment used throughout the Middle East, throughout the Near East, and also among the Greeks, where several cases of execution by stoning, both mythical and historical, are mentioned in the classical writings. Employing this form of punishment, it was the community who executed the judgment and not merely a single individual. And it also ensured that the individual member of the community who dealt the actual death blow would most likely be left unknown. We do the same thing today in a traditional firing squad by issuing one or more blanks randomly among the shooters so that the real death shot, it would not know with certainty who shot it, right? However, greater things are at risk here if this man is not punished swiftly and harshly. Firstly, man must learn that our God and his law are absolutely sovereign. To negotiate away the law of God is to risk the entire community. Today, at this very time, We live with the product of a morality that has been negotiated. And the worsening conditions of our once great Saxon nations are glaringly obvious. Man must realize that if the law is allowed to be circumvented so easily, the corruption of the entire community would surely soon follow. The law's governing morality must be concrete and not negotiable, or we shall fail, and the entire nation shall fail along with us. The law is for the sake of man, 
And if the community is to be healthy, then the law must be obeyed. Secondly, thinking about the immediate situation of this particular individual, we have the gathering of wood in a desert place. Wood in a desert place is scarce and not abundant. And the primary motivation for a man to be gathering wood on the Sabbath could only be to gain advantage over all of those who were obeying the Sabbath in order that he would have all of the available firewood to himself without competition from his kindred. The Jew would think such a man to be crafty and intelligent. The Christian would realize that such a man is selfish and uncaring, flaunting the law to seek an advantage for himself. What other laws would he so brazenly flaunt in order to gain an advantage over his brethren? And if he is allowed to flaunt these laws without dire consequences, how else would other members of the community imagine that they too could think up schemes and to do such things? So we see that this account is about much more than a few sticks. This man heard the law, and he disregarded it for his own benefit to the detriment of his community. He didn't have to stay in the community when he heard the law. If he cared not for the laws which he heard, he could have left and saved his life. The man who cares about himself at the expense of his kindred should indeed be put to death. As for stoning, while it seems a cruel form of punishment, it's the only ancient form of execution which the entire community was compelled to engage in. So it's the community executing the punishment of its member and not an individual. As I just said, the early Greeks as well as the Hebrews used this method of execution. So did other nations in the Near East. Aside from poisoning, which was very unscientific in these days, the ancient alternatives were hanging, beheading, and crucifixion, and perhaps being thrown from a cliff or forcibly held under the water. No one of those ways of execution are any less cruel than the other. So that is why the man was stoned. If the man is not stoned, the entire community suffers because people begin to concoct ways to violate the Sabbath to be gain an advantage over their brethren, it's a slippery slope, and the entire nation slides down that slippery slope. The laws are given for a reason. The death penalty was stated in the law ahead of time. The man was not caught by surprise for his violation. And there was a difference between those who, in punishment, between those who sin out of ignorance, who always have a recompense, and those who sin flaunting the law. And they would destroy a nation very quickly. And we've seen that happen this last hundred years with the infiltration and infestation of the parasitic Jew in all of our Anglo-Saxon nations. I would have to say the last 200 years, right, since the emancipation. So we've witnessed this, and now we have to understand it.
Mark chapter 3, verse 1. And again he, meaning Christ, had entered into the assembly hall. Let me take a minute real quick to explain why I translate synagogue as assembly hall. First, synagogue is not a Hebrew word. Not by any means, not ever, was it a Hebrew word. It's not even a Hebrew word transformed into Greek. Synagogue is actually a compound Greek word, which comes from three small Greek words. The first one being sun, which means together or with. The second one being ago, which is a verb, which means to lead. So when we see sun ago, we, we see the meaning of to lead together. And the last word is gase, and that means the earth or land or ground. So synagogue comes from three Greek words, which means to lead to the assembly ground, basically, is how I would translate it. Synagogue is a Greek word. It was never a Judean word until the Hellenistic period when the Judeans adopted the word to describe they're assembly halls. So I translated assembly hall because that is a translation of the word and not merely a transliteration. And again, he had entered into the assembly hall. And there was a man there having a withered hand. And they were watching him closely, whether he will heal him on the Sabbath in order that they may accuse him. And he says to the man having the withered hand, arise into the middle. In other words, go stand in the central area of the, of the assembly hall. And he says to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbaths or to do bad, to save a life or to kill? In other words, to let a man eat or to force him to starve, as the Pharisees asserted at the end of chapter 2. But they were silent. And looking around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, some of these people were Israelites, some of them were Edomites, he says to the man, extend the hand. And he extended it, and his hand had been restored. And the Pharisees, departing immediately with the Herodians, the people of Herod, the, the clique that hung around Herod, gave counsel against him how they may destroy him. Here, Christ directly challenged the primary basis for the Pharisees' control over the lives of the people of Judea, which was regulatory control, very much like that control that bureaucrats have over us in our own nations today, and we see that they're mostly Jews. It is obvious that they hated him for challenging their control. They didn't care that he healed the man's hand. They didn't care one bit about the man. They hated him because they knew that he was right, or at least they could not say that he was wrong, and yet they could not bear to relinquish the authority which they claimed according to their own interpretations and embellishments of the law. Let me say that the Pharisees were not alone in Judea. 
in their interpretation of the law in this manner. There was another sect in Judea which left actual writings that demonstrate that they too thought very much like the Pharisees in this regard. It can be demonstrated that the Qumran sect of the Dead Sea Scrolls was positively not Christian, and they were not Essenes either. And they made no indication in their writing that they knew anything of Christianity. Here is one Dead Sea Scrolls passage which shows that concerning the Sabbath, their views of the law were consistent with those of the Pharisees. This passage also gives great insight into the mentality of the Pharisees concerning the Sabbath, which is the mentality that Christ challenges here in the Gospel. This is from the scroll known as 4Q 271, Fragment 5, Column 1, which is a portion of what is more popularly known as the Damascus document. And I quote, No one should help an animal give birth on the Sabbath. And if it has fallen into a well or into a pit, he should not take it out on the Sabbath. And any living man who falls into a place of water or a well, no one should take him out with a ladder or a rope or a utensil. In the Christian mind, this should immediately evoke these words of Yahshua recorded here in Mark. Christ would surely want us to help the animal, but especially our fellow man, helping him out of the well or the pit immediately, even on the Sabbath. There is a sharp contrast here with the exposition of Numbers chapter 15, given earlier, at the end of chapter 2. It is unthinkable to violate the Sabbath to gain an advantage over your brethren. But it is unthinkable not to violate the Sabbath to save your brethren from any troubles they may have, which in such a case would certainly not be considered a violation at all. Here we have the difference between the Jewish mind and the Christian mind in great degree. Mark 3, verse 7. And Yahshua withdrew to the sea with his students, and the great multitude from Galilee followed, and from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Edomia, and across the Jordan and around Taurus or Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude hearing what things he had done came to him. And he spoke to his students in order that a boat should be ready waiting for him for reason that the crowd would crush him. If he was standing on a boat slightly off the shore, they could not converge on him and, and suffocate him. For he had healed many so as to fall upon him as many as had afflictions in order that he may touch them, or, or that they may touch him, I'm sorry. And the unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell before him. In other words, the people that, possessed, that were possessed by those spirits fell before him. And cried out, saying, you are the son of Yahweh. And he admonished them often that they should not make him known. So we see that there is a link to the spiritual world through the unclean spirits. <laughs> it was demonstrated here last week 
that the unclean spirits were said by the ancients to have been produced by the mixing of the races. Certain fragments out of the Dead Sea Scrolls and from the Enoch literature were cited to substantiate that claim. However, one citation was inadvertently omitted from the podcast notes which I had prepared last week, and therefore I didn't get to cover it. I will take advantage of this opportunity to cite it now. From 1 Enoch, chapter 15, verses 8 through 12, which corroborates the statements from last week, and I quote, And now the giants who are produced from the spirits and flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth. And on the earth shall be their dwelling. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies, because they are born from men, and from the holy watchers is their beginning and primal origin. They shall be evil spirits on the earth, and evil spirits shall they be called. As for the spirits of heaven, in heaven shall be their dwelling. But as for the spirits of the earth, which were born upon the earth, on the earth shall be their dwelling. And the spirits of the giants afflict, oppress, destroy, attack, do battle, and work destruction on the earth. And cause trouble. They take no food, but nevertheless, they take no food, but nevertheless hunger and thirst and cause offenses. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of men and against the women, because they have proceeded from them. These are the offspring which resulted from the mixed unions between the so-called fallen angels and the men described in Genesis chapter 6, who are later called bastards. For instance, in the Dead Sea Scroll, in 4Q204, it says, Exterminate the spirits of the bastards and the sons of the watchers. The lesson here is that race mixing produces evil people and evil spirits, contrary to popular opinion, according to scripture, we are not all the same inside. Mark 3, verse 13, and he ascends into the mountain and summons those whom he himself had desired, and they came out to him. Let me say in the Christogenian New Testament that the tenses of verbs are used as the originals appear in Greek, even if the English is sometimes difficult to read. And he made the twelve, those whom he also named ambassadors or apostles, that they should be with him and that he would send them to proclaim and to have authority to cast out demons. And he made these twelve. Simon, whom he also labeled with the name Petrus, Peter, and Jacob, the son of Zebedias, and John, the brother of Jacob, and he labeled them with the name Boanerges, which is sons of thunder, and where we see explanations of the meanings of Aramaic words such as this, where they appear in a text that is one of the proofs that this is not a translation from Aramaic into Greek, but rather that this text was originally written in Greek. And Andreas and Philip and Bartholomaeus and Matthias, Matthew, and Thomas and Jacob, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon, Simon the Cananian, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. This is the list of apostles. The 5th century Codex Alexandrinus, has Simon as a Canaanite. 
The Masoretic text, which follows it, therefore, the King James also, I'm sorry, the majority text, which follows it, and therefore the King James also, they also have Simon the Canaanite. The original Greek, the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus, which are both from the 4th century, the Codex Bezai, the Codex Washingtonensis, and the Codex Ephraim Siri, which are all from the 5th century, they all have Simon as a Canaanian, which would indicate that this Simon was not a Canaanite. Rather, he was from the town of Cana in Galilee. Cana was the town where Yahshua attended the wedding feast described in John chapter 2. In John chapter 21, it is evident that Simon is from Cana, where he's called by another name in John's listing of the apostles. John calls him Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. John always calls this apostle Nathaniel. So we've seen in the scripture that Paul had two names, Paulus and Saulus, that Matthew had two names, Matthew and Levi, and now we see that Simon is not a Canaanite. He's a Canaanian, somebody from Cana. And John the Apostle states that he is Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. Mark 3, verse 20, and it's a huge doctrinal, doctrinally important understanding that Simon is not a Canaanite, that he is from Cana. There is a huge difference, and there's only a two-letter difference in Greek, I believe. Mark 3.20, and he comes into a house, and the crowd comes along again, consequently for them not to be able even to eat bread. And hearing it, those of his relations came out to seize him, for they said that he is insane. And the scribes coming down from Jerusalem said that he has Beelzebub, and that by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. So we see that Christ's own family said he was insane. They probably didn't like the spectacle. In Matthew, there is a difference in the earliest manuscripts whether the spelling of the idol's name is Beelzebub or Beelzebul. In that gospel, the oldest of the great uncles, the codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, agree on Beelzebul. So my translation has Beelzebul there. Here in Mark, all of the oldest manuscripts agree on Beelzebub. And so even the Christogenian New Testament is divided because I sought to follow the oldest manuscripts independently for each book of Scripture. There's one minor difference, and that's the, that the Codex Vaticanus is wanting the letter L, so it has B as above. Either way, the meaning is equally repulsive. According to Joseph Thayer's Greek-English lexicon, be Beelzebub is Baalzebub, and it means Lord of flies, while Beelzebul means Lord of dung. There was a book popular when I was a child, but I never read it, called Lord of the Flies. Now I know that it means that that's the definition of Beelzebub, 
Verse 23, and summoning them, he spoke to them in parables. How is Satan able to cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom is not able to stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house shall not be able to stand. This is what Christ is offering as proof to refute their statement that Satan is casting out Satan, or by the prince of demons, he's casting out demons, right? And if Satan stood up against himself and is divided, he is not able to stand, but has an end. Rather, no one is able to enter into the house of the strong man to plunder his equipment, unless one could first find the strong man, and then he shall plunder his house. It is seen here first that the word Satan is used collectively of all of these demons in Christ's response to the accusation that by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. Therefore, we see that Satan describes a collective group who sit in opposition to God. Here Christ not only refutes their allegations concerning him, but he goes even further to assert that it is he who has entered into the house of the strong man to bind the strong man, thereby equating these Edomite Jews to Satan. Christ clarifies this at Luke chapter 11, verses 21 through 23, where, he, where it is recorded that he stated, When a strong man armed keeps his palace, his goods are at peace. But what is stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he takes from him all his armor, wherein he trusted, and divides his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters. Here in Mark, the Edomite Jews who rejected Christ are identified as being against him, as being Satan, the plural entity who are forever opposed to Christ. That's the equation he makes here in his discourse about the strong man. When I covered this in Matthew chapter 12 several months ago, I had given Clifton's lengthy discourse on the binding of the strong man, which is available on his website and in my podcast. And, and my notes for that program, and it demonstrates fully that the Edomite Jews are the strong man which Satan, which the mission of Christ had bound once the world became a Christian world, the Jews were excoriated from society and bound for a thousand years. That's explained at length in my commentary on the Revelation, chapter 20. Verse 28, truly I say to you that all errors shall be remitted for the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may blaspheme, but he who blasphemes to the Holy Spirit, he does not have remission forever, but is liable for eternal guilt. Here I'm going to repeat some of the things which I said when I covered the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 12, where these same words of Christ are recorded. There are people who claim to be Christian identists today who deny the words of Paul, where Paul says that all Israel shall be saved. 
They also deny the words of Isaiah, where Isaiah wrote Yahweh's promise that all the seed of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. That word seed meaning offspring. That's a quote from Isaiah 45.25. These modern-day identists are really modern-day Pharisees who want to throw their own alleged Israelite brethren into the lake of fire. I demonstrated in my commentary on Matthew from the pages of the historian Josephus that the concept of eternal punishment in hell for the children of Israel comes from the Pharisees. The Catholics got it from the Pharisees. The Old Testament scripture tells us that all of the children of Israel, all of our race, will see salvation. While these same modern-day Pharisees want to throw their Israelite brethren into the fire, they also attempt to teach that there is salvation even for good beasts. These people deny the words of Christ, where he says plainly, and I will quote the King James Version, that all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. That word holy is the Greek word hagios. And in, in the biblical context, it means separated and devoted to the purposes of God. That's also what it meant in the old Greek pagan view of the word. Separated and devoted, devoted to the purposes of a God. This word is the word translated holy in the phrase Holy Spirit. We can see from passages found in the Bible in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 53, and in the New Testament at 1 Peter 2, verse 9, that this mandate for Israel to be a separate people never changed. In the Old Testament, the word holy comes from the Hebrew word kodesh, Strong's number 6944. And kodesh primarily means apartness. That's what holy means. It means apartness. We see that word used in Old Testament passages such as Psalm 5111 and Isaiah 63, 10 and 11. From these passages, it seems to refer both to the presence of the Spirit of God and the Spirit which God bestowed upon the Adamic man. This is what Christ and the apostles refer to when they tell us that we, the Adamic race, the white race, are not of the world. Because we have that Spirit that comes from above. As John explains in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, that those who are not of the Adamic race have indeed been created by the world and not by God. John's message in its context is for the children of Israel exclusively. John tells us that we are not of the world, meaning the children of Israel, 
And that these other people that are opposed to Christ, they are of the world. They were created by the errors and sins of men. Through race mixing. John mentions a sin which is under death, where he says it 1 John 5.16 from the King James. If any man see his brother's sin a sin which is not under death, he shall ask, meaning to ask in prayer, and he, meaning God, shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. For this reason, I believe that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is that sin unto death. It is the promotion of integration and race mixing. You're blaspheming that spirit of separation which is given to our race. The sin of race mixing causes death to our race, which is in turn an act of war against that spirit which God bestowed upon the Adamic man. You're warring against God when you race mix. That's the sin unto death. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit when you promote that race mixing and tell people that it's good. Verse 30. Because they said he has an unclean spirit. In verse 30, Mark simply makes a parenthetical statement explaining why Yahshua spoke these things to the apostles in parables. Mark 3.31. And his mother comes and his brethren. And standing outside, they sent to him, summoning him. And the crowd sat around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers seek you outside. And replying to them, he says, Who is my mother and my brethren? And looking about at those sitting around him, he says, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For he who should do the will of Yahweh, he is my brother and sister and mother. Remember in the verses prior that his family thought that he was insane. So they would rather seek the, the approval of men. Here also I shall repeat some of the things I said in Matthew chapter 12, since this same account is found there in verses 46 through 50. This passage refutes the idea of Roman Catholic Mary worship. Just because a person has the honor of being chosen by God for a particular purpose in life does not make that person special above the rest of God's people. It is obvious that Yahshua certainly did not exalt his earthly mother above others. The Catholics also deny the plain meaning of the phrase, your mother and your brethren. Instead, they promote a lie concerning Mary's alleged perpetual virginity. Yet here and in several other New Testament passages, it is quite clear that Yahshua Christ had earthly siblings through his mother Mary. After Yahshua himself was born... Mary must have had other children by her earthly husband, Joseph. Yet if these were only brethren in the faith, as the Catholics would have it, then the phrase would become meaningless since the person speaking said to him, your brethren, when there were obviously a multitude of people of the faith present 
who were not considered to be his brethren in that fashion. The idea of brothers and sisters who are only so in the faith alone is a false idea, which is meant to diminish the racial meaning of the words as they are used in the Bible. A brother or sister can only be, in its original Greek meaning, one of the same immediate genetic family. While the New Testament writers often use the words brother and sister in a slightly wider sense than the Greeks did to encompass all members of the tribes of the children of Israel, the word still cannot be stripped of its familial meaning. Furthermore, the Christian faith is, by definition, the faith belonging to those to whom the covenants belong. And therefore, a brother or sister in the faith can only include Israelites, since by the definition of the faith, all others are excluded, the covenants being made only with Israelites. That's the end of my presentation of Mark's chapters 2 and 3. I'm sure there were probably facets of these chapters left uncovered, and I will cover those topics when we proceed through Mark, or as I proceed through Luke, God willing, which I hope to cover next. Tomorrow night I'll be here with um, with a presentation of my paper, which might take a couple of weeks, The Race of Genesis 10, which demonstrates that all of the people mentioned in the scripture who were descendants of Noah certainly were white people that all of those nations can, for the most part, be identified in history. Genesis 10 is the beginning of the historical, to us historical, because it can all be found in history, identification of our race in the Bible. Genesis 10 is the beginning. It describes the beginning of what we know today as white civilization. And that will be my presentation here tomorrow night. I'll be here next week, God willing, with Mark chapter 4. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh.